Hi, I'm Cameron Harold. I'm the author of The Second in Command, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today on episode 420 is Cameron Harold. Cameron Harold is the COO Whisperer. He's the founder of the COO Alliance and the Second in Command podcast. By age 35, Cameron had helped build his first two $100 million companies. By age 42, he had engineered 1-800-GOT-JUNK spectacular growth from $2 million to $106 million in revenue in just six years. An in-demand speaker, best-selling author, mentor, coach, and he has shown hundreds of clients globally how to both double their revenue and profit in three years or less. Cameron appeared on episode 326 to share insights about how to really hold meetings that matter from his book, Meetings Suck. He's the founder of the COO Alliance, a qualified and vetted peer group designed to support and develop the second in command. Cameron Held lives in Scottsdale, Arizona, and, here's, and is here to talk about his book, The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. Welcome, Cameron. Hey, Bill. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. And crazy that it's been almost 100 episodes since we were last on. It feels like a few months. And I love that I get episode 420. That's just a super awesome number. It's fabulous. It's great to have you on. You bring such energy, great ideas, and the experiences are something that our listeners really gravitate towards. Nice to be here. So now that we're back in, into it, let's get right into it. What is a, a quote that captures your vivid vision? for your business and feel free to share a little bit about what your vivid vision is. Wow, interesting. So I'm gonna give you a quote that ties into this new book because it's a really powerful one that I hadn't, I don't even know if I put it in the book, but it's really dawned on me since writing it. And it was Thomas Edison that talked about vision without execution is hallucination. And most entrepreneurs, the terms of visionary and integrator have become very popular from the book Traction from Gina Wickman in the last 15 years, the idea of the visionary operating in a vacuum is really dangerous because they don't get enough of the right stuff done. And the visionary is the CEO and the person in charge of execution is their second in command. And it's, it was just such a true statement that Edison made, but you can have your vision boards or your vivid visions or ideas that you share with the world. But if you don't actually put the, the actual plans in place and the people in place and stay focused on that, the vision really is never going to get hit. And you were hired as a COO. It wasn't something that you were seeking out the first time you were hired as a COO. Can no. you share the story as to how you got hired and defined what your roles and responsibilities would be? Sure. I had played a second in command in a couple of different ways with a couple of different companies, but not truly the COO until October of 2000. And my best friend, Brian Scudamore, was running a little business. He had 13 employees. He was just bumping into the $2 million mark and wanted to really franchise and grow this business. I said I would coach him. I would work behind the scenes and coach he and his team on how to scale what was called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And after about two weeks, his vice president of operations went to Brian and said, I can't do anything that Cameron wants to do. I think we should hire him 
and I think he should replace me. And Jesse Corzan stepped aside and I came in and basically that was what wrote the rest of the history was me actually understanding how to scale the business. So I came in as employee number 14. When I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. We'd gone from 2 million in revenue to 106 million in revenue. We had no debt. We had no outside shareholders. We'd landed 5,200 individual unique stories in the media about the company, including being on Oprah. And we ranked as the number two company in all of Canada to work for. So really amazing growth period. That was how I got into the story of the CEO role. What's interesting to me as I just listened to you is that you and the CEO said, here are the things I'm good at. Here's the things that you're good at. There seemed to be this perfect match of things that Brian didn't want to do and wasn't good at and things that you love to do, had a lot of interest and passion, expertise in, and you really could pick up and go with. So there was that yin and yang combination. Yeah, it's funny. The yin and yang is even what I put as the logo on the front cover of my book, The Second in Command, because that's exactly how I felt about that role since he and I were in it. Now, to be fair... And I think I mentioned this in the book, Brian and I had a very unfair advantage. Brian was my best man at my wedding three months before I started to coach him and work with him. So we already knew each other, trusted each other and loved each other as friends. And then we were also in a mastermind community. We were involved in the entrepreneurs organization in the same chapter and we were in the same forum group for four years. So we met every month for four years for about four to six hours a month to talk about each other's businesses. So he had seen me grow two other companies. So it's almost like he had a four and a half year interview watching me build these businesses. And it's almost like I had a four and a half year interview watching him to see, is he the kind of person I want to work with? So day one, it was like, let's do this. There was really no learning period at all, which was a really, again, a bit of an unfair advantage. So for people listening and wondering how to build a closer relationship or develop more trust, with their COO so they have that rapport and understanding and belief in each other. What do you recommend is, is one or two simple things that people can do? I think it's very similar to a marriage. And then I also think back on what was it from that entrepreneur's organization experience and our time as friends that built the trust. And that's really how I've coded the best way for a CEO and the second in command to build the trust. So one is to spend a lot of time together, to spend time together doing a hobby, finding something that you have in common that you like to do together, finding some time to get away from the kids, right? Finding some time to get away from the rest of employees where we would go off site and we would work together every Thursday for about four hours. We used to go for a morning run on Tuesday and Thursday mornings and train for a half marathon together. We love to go out and eat dinners together. We love to go and have a couple drinks together. We really geeked out on business and conferences together. So we would go away to these events together and spend time. We would even share hotel rooms in conferences because we liked each other as friends and it was a way to save money. It wasn't a hard thing to do to spend time with your friend. We also were really good at understanding that the first and most important thing was our relationship. The second and most important thing was the business. And then any argument we had or agreement we had was always trying to make the company better or to try to grow towards the vivid vision or to try to make the plan come through. It was never about the person. So we didn't take back personally. We took it as constructive criticism. And that was a learning exercise. And then we also even had in the very early days, a coach to come in and work with us on our interpersonal skills, because we had 
so many similarities and we did know each other so well and we were growing so quickly that we brought this woman, Joan Mare, and it's amazing, I even remember her name, 21 years old. And she came in and did a couple of sessions with us to help us understand how to communicate and understand each other's differences. So they're very similar to what you would do in a, a traditional marriage. When a CEO is bringing in a, a new chief operating officer, there needs to be that level of trust where you would feel comfortable giving that person your password, your bank account, and you write in the book and sending them on a vacation with your wife <laughs> because there's that level of trust totally. that has to be there in the relationship. And many people, I think, don't think of that as a key attribute of the relationship or the dynamic. And it's probably one of the reasons why COOs or second in commands don't get to fulfill their full potential because they don't have that working relationship with the CEO. And it goes both ways. If they don't get that working trust from the CEO, there's this underlying worry that they're maybe not the right person, or there's this imposter syndrome or having to show the right thing. So they don't want to be open. And so it creates this negative loop instead of a positive relationship loop. So yeah, the trust is absolutely critical. I talked to a CEO recently and he said, it'll take me about three months after the COO starts to know if I hired the right person. And I said, that's because you have a shitty interview process. Like if you had the right interview process, if you did the right reference checks, if you had a number of your team interviewing this person, if you really put them through the ringer, you would know everything about them day one. And it's again, getting married. Why would you get married to a spouse and say, we'll see how it goes for the first three months if I really love them or not. That's why we live together before we get married these days is we get to know the person a little bit more. It's like a longer interview process, a much more in-depth interview process. You meet their friends, you meet their family. You don't fall in love and go, wow, she's amazing. Let's get married and then hopefully it works. And I'll tell you in 90 days, if it's a good match, that would be a success rate. That's a dreadful process, yet it's altogether too common. It sounds mm -hmm. like the CEO you were talking with simply made the hiring decision too quickly and really was still conducting the interview. Exactly. They didn't really know what to look for in the interview as well. So I spend a lot of time in the book, The Second in Command, talking about how do you identify what you're looking for in your second in command? And then when you're in the interview process, how do you know if they have it? So how do you interview for it? And then getting into some of even the onboarding to make sure that you can set them up for success. At 1-800-JUNK, I don't know where it was in your tenure, but I remember you writing about a big disagreement that the head of product development and the head of IT had. And it was your responsibility to referee that situation and have them knock it off. Because first of all, there were terrible implications for the company. And second, it was like a dumpster fire in the middle of morale. It was it, ridiculous. It about the situation and what you had to make sure happened. I think back now and laugh, and they both laugh about it as well. We're still friends to this day. This, is, this was probably 15, oh gosh, 17 years ago. So Roman Asbel was our VP of IT. Brilliant, spectacularly brilliant IT built the software that, that the company built was built off of. The company could have never existed without Roman and he doesn't get enough of those accolades. Unbelievable. He was Russian. He was very dogmatic and very practical and very stern and very, and then we had this woman, Jennifer Huffnagel, who was our head of product development and she was the interface between it and operations and Jennifer was fun and she was Gen Y and she was not Russian and she was female. She was very demanding and wanted to argue for things for the better of the company, but she was young. I think she was probably 
I'll guess 26 or 27 at the time. So you have this Russian and this 26 year old and they just clashed and Roman at one point said, you're just like my mother. Boom. That just, that blew everything up. And it really wasn't a big argument. It wasn't about anything other than styles. So I sat down with a model called the conflict management model that I actually included in my invest in your leaders. And it's a four-step model to help people work through a conflict in a healthy way. And when I did that with them, they both came out the other end laughing. And I don't think they ever became best friends, but they certainly understood each other well enough that they could respect each other's differences versus explode. And what I like so much is that as you described that story in the book, you also made sure to mention what you didn't do. You also made sure that you didn't take on responsibilities Mm -hmm. that either of them were arguing about. If there was, say, a turf war, it's a very common mistake, isn't it? That's a great insight that you remember. Too often the COO or the second in command takes on the responsibilities of their direct reports instead of recognizing that our role is to grow our direct reports. It's to grow their skills and to grow their confidence. The only way we can grow their skills and the confidence is to sit beside them and coach them and problem solve with them or show them what to do. It's how I've raised my kids, frankly. If my kids are fighting with each other, I don't sit and talk to each of them separately. I usually pull them both together and get them to talk to each other and try to work it out. I might coach them on what to say or how to say things, but I'm not going to be the intermediary between them. So that was a good insight. You have grown the COO Alliance during the pandemic lockdown. What Mm. is an example of maybe someone you were working with, and you could just use first names, but someone you were working with who had recognized that there was difficulty, but had to innovate and approach problem solving a different way because we were no longer in the office. Oh, we've had, I've had a lot of those, but the biggest commonality that we've seen with the CEO Alliance, and we have about 170 members from 17 countries right now, is the interpersonal skills or interpersonal relationship with their CEO and how they've had to work on that because of COVID. They didn't have the time in the office sitting beside each other and over coffees. And there was a bit of a, we didn't get to see each other as much or moving quickly, or the stress was being magnified because of COVID. So a lot of it was going back to that. How do we foundationally build trust? How do we foundationally communicate? Helping them with communication, helping them with written communication, helping them to interpret each other's communication in a softer way as well. Do you remember an example of one person who reported back the impact that it made to have an intentional conversation to either build trust or repair a rift or to strengthen their working relationship. Yeah, I remember one of the CEOs who was very, uh, used to ask a lot of questions to start projects. So they're a high fact finder and their CEO was a very high quick start. He would start now and plan later, right? We'll figure it out as we go. And for the CEO, they used to like to ask a lot of questions. So the big impact that I gave them that they reported back on was anytime their entrepreneur came to them with, here's a great idea, what do you, they would start by, instead of start by asking seven questions, they would start by saying, I love that idea. Let me ask you a few questions so I can understand it even more. Their CEO is like, great, let's go. And they would try to go and just talk through it. So it was that simple statement of honoring the idea. After the CEO fills in the blanks with the seven or eight questions being answered, the COO can then say, I still love the idea. Why don't we work on that next quarter? But if you want to do it this quarter, that's okay. But which project of our 10 should we bump? Because we don't have time to do all the current 10. 
So you, so the CEO understands that the idea is being held. It's still safe. It's understood. And it's not a no, it's just a not now. So it's how do you honor that style of that quick start or the high. Tell me a little bit more about the Colby method and how you use it in your program. Now we use disc and the Colby profile with our CO Alliance, almost second in command in our CO Alliance has a high first or second number in Colby. The first number is a fact finder. It means they ask a lot of questions to start or initiate a project. The second number I believe is misnamed, but it's called follow through. But what it really means, it doesn't mean that you follow through on things. It means that you use a system or a playbook or a to-do list. You have to have that in place before you start the projects. You, you pl- have a plan before you start. And that's again, a very second command thing. The high third number is called quick start. And that's just, you plan, you, you plan later. You start now, you've got, you're the perpetual motion machine, very entrepreneurial. The high fourth number is called an implementer. And that's really the person who needs the tools or the physical models in place before they start. So it's like a contractor with their tool belts or the architect with the model or the engineer with the schematics. They need those before they start, right? Again, very not entrepreneur, but to understand everyone will get to the same results. They just approach it in a different way is very- Make good use of the Colby system, a lot like our friend, Justin Breen, who talks about that as a key way that he uses to, to network and to build out his, his companies. Um, oh yeah. Interesting. I got introduced to Colby from Dan Sullivan, who started a program called strategic coach. And I've invested in myself. I just calculated the other day, almost $800,000 in my growth from being involved in different mastermind communities over the years. I did seven years of strategic coach, seven years of genius network, five years at baby bathwater, five mastermind talks, events, some war rooms, like all these different groups, Mavericks. And that was something I recognized as a need for the COO Alliance was there was nowhere for O's to go and learn. They don't belong in these entrepreneurial groups because they're around all these other quick starts that aren't like them. They need a place filled with people that want to spend six hours talking about interviewing. And the entrepreneurs already covered 12 ideas by that point. See, the COOs, contrary to a lot of people who superficially think they understand what COO roles mean, is that they're not necessarily the operations expert. There's so many other different ways to look at a COO. Mm. How did you come to broaden your understanding of that? Was it through meeting with so many others who resonated with it? Was it reading a particular article or book that suddenly opened that door for you? It was a few things. So first it was meeting a lot of other COOs and recognizing we're really different. Even though we had the same title, we're very different animals. In some cases, these COs, they ran finance and IT. I didn't have finance and IT reporting to me. In some cases, they were very inward facing COs. I was very outward facing, like Harley Finkelstein from Shopify, where we did biz dev and marketing and PR and talk to the media. So we, I realized that these second commands were just very different. In some cases, like a, a stay-at-home dad or a, a mom that likes to work on and do yard work more. Like, you don't have to be in the traditional roles of the 1950s movie. That's one thing I identified. And then I bumped into an article years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the CO. And it was a Harvard Business Review article that identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers. So it was a combination of these things that and I mentioned that article in my book as well. And also the authors, there was something really interesting about that, that if you're the head of marketing, you could pretty much be the head of marketing for most companies. 
If you're the head of finance, you could probably be the head of finance for most companies. But if you're the head of operations, you could probably only be the head of operations for 10% of other companies. I would be a horrible COO for 95% of my COO Alliance members because the company is the wrong fit or the CEO is the wrong fit or the size of the business is the wrong fit for me. Talk about the importance of that because many people think that they're interchangeable within companies. What would mm. be something that you wouldn't be able to do or you wouldn't be as effective as someone who was a good fit with the personality and needs of the CEO or of the company or of the industry? Sure. So I'll give a great example. So I was a very, very right person, right fit at the right time at 1-800-GOD-JUNK because I really understood franchising, right? A deep understanding of franchising and a deep understanding of franchising in the home services space. I had built out a company called College Pro Painters. Now, if you've heard of College Pro Painters, most companies don't understand this, but there were about 60 people at the head office. I was in the top 30. In the, and those people would go out and every year would recruit, hire, and train 800 franchisees. So in one year, we'd find 800 franchisees and train them all. And then in six weeks, those 800 franchisees would be trained to go out and get 8,000 university students to paint houses and train them. And then between May 1st and August 31st, in 17 weeks, we'd paint $64 million in houses. September 1st, all of those 8,800 university students would quit and go back to school. We would all get drunk at the head office. We'd wake up September 2nd and we'd do it again. We became operationally world-class at that side of the business. To go into 1-800-GOT-JUNK in the early days as a COO without that depth of experience of franchising in the home services sector, you wouldn't have been able to build out the franchise sales program, the franchise training program, the franchise recruiting program, the PR, the marketing, people wouldn't have built out the leadership programs. Like there was so many moving parts that I had already done where most COOs wouldn't be able to do that. And I'll add another dimension, which I also gleaned as an insight from your book, The Second in Command, which is the stage of the company. Because mm. you say that a COO and probably a COO, probably the whole management team, isn't as effective at the same level after you double twice. So it's yeah. your double rule. If they go from 2 million to 4 million to 8 million, you probably need to bring in different talent with different experiences to go from 8 to 20 million. Yeah. What was it that allowed you to rise through that double and actually be an exception to your own rule? So there's two parts to that. And so Clayton Mask, the founder of Infusionsoft, he and I have talked about this double rule a couple times, and we are both in complete agreement. That's around where it is. And then Ben Horowitz, who was one of the founders of Netscape, who wrote The Hard Thing About Hard Things, talks about going through one triple. So if you go from 3 million to, it's almost impossible to stay in that same role to take it to 27. The, what made me the exception was two things. I had the skill set to actually do a lot of the early stage stuff, and I was the right cultural fit to roll up my sleeves and get dirty. So I came into a company much smaller then my skills had already been running. So that gave me a, a few years of doubles. I had just come out of a company with 900 employees where we were hiring three people a day. And in, in operating that business or in the auto body business that I'd helped build, I'd been around it for enough time. And with College Pro, I'd been around it. So it was my fourth company. So I had a deep set of skills to drop down to a 14-person company. So it only started to get big to me 
around the 30 to $60 million size, right? When we had the 1500 employees, it was starting to get big. So it was really in that sixth year that it got tough or six and a half year. The second thing was if a leader continues to work on their skill set at the same rate that the company is scaling, then they can often buy themselves one or two more doubles. But it, the leadership skills need to get stronger. So their skills around situational leadership, coaching, time management, project management, delegation, running effective meetings, hiring, building cross-departmental teams, strategy, interpersonal skills, like those skills have to keep getting better or the leader starts to get out of a job because the company is so substantially different. So I think that was where I also had the unfair advantage was I'd been certified in about 12 or 14 really strong leadership skills that I'd gone through a lot of deep training and practicing and actually been certified in these skills. So I brought that to the table as well. It's I hard. Observed and that I, it was your interest and commitment to gaining those skills that only prepared you better than others because you knew that you could expand your toolkit. It wasn't that you yeah, were rely on the same fixed set of tools. I'd say even more than that, it was also my deep belief that a leader's core job is to grow people. So when we were building College Pro Painters, the only way that we could scale the company was really to recruit and hire amazing people and then really train them well so that we had enough predictable success. To, to train 800 franchisees every year, you had to be very, very good at growing people because we had to train them on interviewing and recruiting and time management. So we, I had a very solid skill base of growing leaders. So for me, coming into the 1-800-GOT-JUNK as my fourth business, it wasn't hard for me to understand, am I going to get results through that? For me, it was the only way I, could, I knew how to grow the business. If you grow your people, you'll grow the business. So true. You've seen it now happen even when people were in lockdown. People continue to grow, continue to learn, and interact so long as you have a particular focus on growing the business rather than missing why aren't we meeting in person and all of the distractions that many people throw up as excuses for not growing or developing their own skills. Uh, yeah, I saw two great examples of that happen during COVID. And one, one is Zach Morrison, who is the CEO of Tenuity. And I had coached them from about 40 employees up to about 400. They now have 1500 employees and he has moved from the COO role into the CEO role, which is highly unusual. Secondly was Matt Wool, who was another one of the founding members of the COO Alliance. I had coached them before joining the CEO Alliance as well, but he's now running about a 330 person organization as CEO, and he had been COO prior. What allowed both of them to scale was the company got to be big enough that it really wasn't an entrepreneurial organization anymore. And the style of COO becomes much less visionary, much less quick start, much less let's make it up on the fly. And they become a much more professionally managed CEO who deals with the G and people. That's how they were able to grow as well and stay in those roles for themselves. But they were very deeply engaged in learning as well. They were both members of the COO. They were both receiving coaching. They were both reading tons of books and listening to podcasts and working on growing their own skills. They both had other mentors they worked with. So both of them continued to stay in their role as CEO through rapid growth. And then they moved up to the next level of CEO because they'd grown themselves. That's a great story. 
And it's not a typical story. It's one that okay. shows people what a wide range of possibilities there are for the second in command. Now, yeah, it's not very typical at all. It's interesting. If we went out and polled most of our CEO Alliance members, most of them have no desire to ever be a CEO or truly most have no desire to ever be an entrepreneur because they see the role as so completely different. You're always innovating. What is one thing that excites you now about your work today? Right now, it's this whole open AI. It's this, the, the ability to use AI inside of your business. So leveraging ChatGPT is the current one. I'm blown away by the ability to fast forward thinking and to ideate at a different level, to take a rough idea of a marketing piece and have it spit out ideas or take a, it's just incredible what you can take a legal document, an eight page legal document and copy and paste it in and say, rewrite this for me as a, a one page summary, but in, in a language an eight year old would understand. And it's done. I'm like, this used to take, this would have taken a week before to find somebody and get a lawyer and dumb it down. Like it would have taken three people to do it. And now it's literally done and it's for free or it'll be a small fee. I'm just blown away by what we'll be able to use technology to do. My approach is very similar. I'm using chat GPT and other AI tools as thinking partners is come up Mm -hmm. with these ideas. What is this perspective and summarizing things like you are, because you can't rely on it to produce finished work but you could sure use it to advance things through the value life cycle. Um, now what I'm, in, what I'm learning as well is we can get it to produce finished work if we know the prompts and the questions to ask it to continue to, to revise it. So you can take something and get a rough work and then you can say, make it more fun, drop in some emojis, make it more salesy, make it sound more like this paragraph that I wrote, use neurolinguistic programming. You can literally tweak it and it will. No different than talking to a writer that maybe works for you. Like I've had people in my team that actually did communications writing and I would have to go through four or five iterations to get it to great. You're just having to understand how do we lead the computer with the right questions. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. I was listening to a podcast yesterday and they were talking about the argument that could be made that by 2040, not a single job that exists today will exist because of robotics and AI and deep learning. And that's crazy to think that it's just, we just don't understand the tool yet. Right? But we could you ask know, the questions with the right prompts and it'll explain it to us. I was saying that people are going to forget how to think. Well, maybe, but maybe thinking won't be as required as it is today. A hundred years ago, if someone had said kids these days are going to be in trouble because they're not farming anymore and they don't know how to farm. Now you just drive to the grocery store. Like before they didn't have the grocery stores and they didn't even have cars to get to the grocery stores. There wasn't excessive. Well now, so now the idea of learning how to farm and spending all this time to understand how farming is stupid. I think the business is evolving very quickly. I heard a saying a few years ago that if the rate of change outside your business is greater than the rate of change inside your business, you're out of business. So true. Cameron, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yeah, let's go for it. When you were growing up, before you had gotten into business, who was an author that you loved to read? Wow, an author? Oh, I love the Hardy Boys books. I was obsessed with the Hardy Boys books. That was way before I got into business. But yeah, I think I read like 40 of them. I love the problem solving and I love the just being able to go deep into this tunnel of vision and imagination. What are the top metrics or APIs that you track in your own business? The number one is my employee satisfaction, my employee net promoter score. How happy are my employees? 
The second one for me is how happy are my customers? My, so it's my customer net promoter score. The third I'm looking at is my attendance of my clients at our monthly events. Just understanding if they're showing up and they're happy. That's a pretty good prediction. And then the last two are my cost of acquisition and my lifetime value and the cash conversion cycle of those two. So how fast am I converting my acquisition cost into revenue and am I doing it at a four to one lever? How do you define personal success? It's, it's interesting. When I was two years old, my grandfather passed away and one of his final words with my family were, with a name like Cameron Gardner Harold, that kid's going to be something someday. And I had heard that from my father so often growing up that it felt like a curse. It felt like I had to live up to something. And around 2010, I felt like I was already. I had the house, I had the car, I had the golf club, I had the chalet at Whistler, I was married, I had kids, I had friends, I, had, was, I felt, I didn't feel like I needed to achieve any more in business. I'd built 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I had my flags in the sand. And I think that's when I finally felt at ease to just not, I didn't have to keep driving to prove anything to anyone else. But I definitely had a chip on my shoulder for the first three years after leaving 1-800-GOT-JUNK in this need to prove to these other entrepreneurs that I was as good or as smart as they were. And then when I think when I finally released that around 2010, it just got easier. Now I can drive for goals, but just because I want to, not because there's a need to do something. And that was a finally feeling like I was successful. Who are one or two people or podcasts or books that inspire you your field today? The My First Million podcast is one that I've been listening to a ton with, and that's Sam Parr and Sean Purry, and just love the content on that. Another one that I've become obsessed with in about the last six months is called All In, and it's just got four brilliant people from the Bay Area. So it's Chamath and Jason Colasenas, David Sachs, and David Freeberg, and they're just these amazing thinkers and the ideas that they have and the debates that they have and the fun that they can have. I just love it, the level that they're thinking and how they can also just have a good time with it too, versus they don't sound like a bunch of broadcasters out there. They're just having a good time together. Cameron, we talk a lot about COO. You work with CEOs through the COO Alliance, and you also, you write about them a great deal. What would be one piece of advice that you'd offer someone who was looking to become a COO and thought that, that was a, a potentially viable and fulfilling path. It's great. I think it is an amazing path. The first would be to just get a deep understanding for yourself as to who you are as a person and what do you love and what do you not love? What drains you of energy and what fills you of energy? What areas of business are you really strong at and what areas are you really do you suck at? And then try to look for that partner, that CEO partner, who is the opposite of that right? A partner who is great at the stuff that you're not, who is weak in the areas you're strong, but who you mesh with culturally, someone who you like that you could hang with. So it is the yin and yang. It's the inverse of what I talk about in finding a CEO. Flip that and that's how you find the right CEO partner. And then the other part would be, and I do speak about this as well, don't change your company level too drastically. If you're an executive at a big Fortune 500 company, it's very hard for you to go and work for an entrepreneurial organization unless you learn the entrepreneurial DNA and the entrepreneurial behavioral traits because a lot of the ways that business is done at a bigger level, it's not done that way in a smaller company. And it will drive you crazy. It'll drive them crazy, right? And then vice versa. If you're a smaller 
entrepreneurial style person, don't try to go and work in a big organization because you'll fail at it. Another perspective is when it's time to actually move on from your COO role, what are some additional insights you have for people who are looking at this either from the CEO's perspective or from the COO's perspective of when it's time to say, you know what, I may not be doing my best here. I might need to look for something different. Yeah. I'll, so I'll talk about that. So my story is that in a way I at around the five year mark when we were at about 60 million. So we'd gone from two to about 60 that it was getting big. I wasn't really having as much fun anymore. It was just big. We were operating in four countries, 13 operating businesses, 330 locations, about 2,500 employees at the time. I was just, it was hard. And I don't think I was enjoying my life because I, all it was working and I was overwhelmed all the time. I was always trying to play catch up with stuff. And I remember at about the six, six and a half year mark, I said to Brian, my the CEO's assistant, I feel like Brian's going to fire me tomorrow. She's like, oh, shut up, go home, hang out with your kids. Everything's fine. And I was like, no. And I used to take this different path out of the office every day because we were operating in 60,000 square feet spread over three floors. So I would intentionally walk down one of the different stairways or walk through a different business area to say goodbye to some of the people working late. And so this day I walked down two floors and walked through a couple of the boardrooms on the way out. And I said hi to Helen, who was our head of HR. And she flipped some papers over on the desk in front of her. I was like, wow, I am really getting fired tomorrow. This is crazy. And the next morning at 7 a.m., Brian and I were having breakfast together at the Vancouver Club. And I think I ordered my Eggs Benedict and he ordered grapefruit. I'm like, grapefruit? You're an Eggs Benny guy too. What are you doing? Grapefruit. And then he, he got choked up and he had a tear in his eye and he said, I think we're done. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I think, I think you're the right guy to take us from the million to the hundred million, but you're the wrong guy to get us to the billion. And we both started crying and I was sobbing and he was crying. And I don't know, about a half hour later, he made me take a taxi home because I was unable to drive the 12 minute drive, but he was right. I was the wrong guy to go to the next level. And what he recognized was I was the right guy for that, for that period. I don't what, forget what the saying is your partner or a spouse is like, it can be the right person for a reason or the season or the lifetime. And I think Brian and I were the right people for the season. And the season was that startup to world-class. Like we did build a globally admired brand and everything that we'd set out to do, we'd done. I helped him execute the 2003 painted picture or vivid vision. Then we did the 2006 vivid vision. We set, we hit all the goals we ever went out to set. Some of the crazy ones I could list being on Oprah, becoming a Harvard business school case study. So being, we, our names were on Starbucks cups. Like it was crazy, the stuff that we pulled off, but to go to the next level was too big for me. And then a year later, they brought the former president of Starbucks US in as my replacement. And Lonnie came in and looked around and said, what a cute little business, right? I'm pulling my hair out and she's, this is cute. Let's grow this. She turned out to be the wrong person because she was too corporate. She wasn't entrepreneurial enough. She didn't embrace the franchising side of things. So 12 months after she started, she was let go. And then they did about another 12 month period. And then they hired Eric Church who Eric and I have known each other since 1987. We both started a fraternity together in Ottawa, Canada, 35 years ago. I was president the first year. He was president the second year. And now he's the COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, has been a spectacular COO, and he's got them now to the 450 million mark. 
but he would have been terrible in the first six and a half years because he didn't have that entrepreneurial franchising, guerrilla marketing, or the real connection to Brian to have made that. So it's a, it, for the reason or the season or the lifetime, and Eric might be there for the lifetime because the business is big enough to make that one work. That's such a great insight. And it comes from your own experience. Your own message comes from what you lived through and what you reflected on in order to bring that to others and help them learn from it, both in your book as well as the COO Alliance. Cameron Harold, I just want to thank you so much for sharing today. A few of the highlights that we covered was how to identify what a COO role is like, how to bring a COO on and be able to help them understand that it starts as soon as they're hired. The interview process should be thorough enough to make sure that they're poorly vetted, making sure that we understood that you have to be a good fit at the right time, in the right industry, and with the right CEO to be an effective COO. And so for these and so many more reasons, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best today. Hey, Bill, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you helping me share the ideas in the second command book as well. Before we say goodbye for now, Cameron, where can people go to find out more about you, your work, and the book? Sure. If you go to Cameron Herald forward slash new books, they'll see the, the book will be there or just go to Amazon and grab it. And then also check out the Second in Command podcast because I have had 250 O's of some amazing companies on there as guests as well. We're going to link to CameronHerald.com. We're going to link to your podcast. We're going to link to Amazon as well as the CEO Alliance to make it super easy for everyone listening to go to the show notes and find easy ways to connect with you and continue to learn. Cameron Herald author of The Second in Command, How to Unleash the Power of Your COO. I want to thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best. You really have made something of yourself, even with the name Cameron Harold. Thanks once again. <laughs> thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.